I felt disappointed because I did feel that not long after the attack, things had started to go back to normal. And I personally would have wanted us to kind of figure out new ways of talking about it. Maybe ways that weren't going to re-trigger or re-traumatize people involved, but to be able to actually heal. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. Thanks for joining me for this kōrero. It was a pleasure to sit down for this conversation with Muhammad Hassan, back from London briefly to promote his new book. Muhammad is a former New Zealand Poetry Slam champion who represented New Zealand in the World Individual Poetry Slam in 2016. Muhammad has also worked in television and radio journalism in New Zealand and overseas over the last decade. And most recently, he is the author of the recently released How to Be a Bad Muslim and Other Essays. And just a little hint on that one, the title does not mean what I thought it would mean before I read the book. We talk about the power of words and storytelling. We hear about some of his experiences as a journalist, particularly time covering the Middle East, including the Palestinian-Israel conflict, and his reporting on the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks, when he was connected in so many ways to so many of the victims from the mosques. We talk about Muhammad's new book, which covers themes of xenophobia, Islamophobia, Fano, love and loss. We also hear about why it is important to Muhammad to share about his mental health journey in a number of his book's essays. It's another fantastic kōrero. This is episode 59 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Muhammad Hassan. It's my privilege today to be speaking to Muhammad Hassan. Uh, kia ora, Muhammad. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Andy. Thank you for having me. Uh, Nohia Kwe, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a writer uh, and a journalist and a poet. I have been telling stories for the last 10 or so years, both here uh, in Auckland, where I am now, um, but also overseas. I spent some time in Istanbul uh, and currently based in London, um, but just back to do some events and, and talk to some people and hang out with the community, see family. I was born in Cairo, in Egypt, and I migrated to Auckland when I was eight years old, spent most of my life here, uh, most of my upbringing and, and shaping uh, as a human being was here. And this is also where I discovered my life, my love for, for poetry and telling stories. And uh, yeah, I guess that's that's where I've come from. Um, that's where I am now. I've been writing some poems and some essays and uh, covering the Middle East as part of my day job as a journalist over in London. Um, and it's been really awesome to be back here again. Yeah, awesome. Um, I first came across you as a poet. Um, I was up for the um, performing at the 2016 National Poetry Slam in Kirikiriroa, uh, Hamilton, and you'd won the, the National Slam the year before, so you were back to kind of present to us and, and share your gift with us. Um, and also that year, you represented Aotearoa in the World Individual Poetry Slam. Um, how, how did you get into poetry? I really found a love for poetry when I was in high school, uh, in English class. I had a couple of really awesome English teachers that supported me, and I've been thinking about English teachers a lot, 
lately um, and had the privilege to meet uh, a bunch of them um, at Oakland Writers Festival last week and then and then uh, uh, over the last few days in, in Christchurch um, and was really reminded at how much of a profound influence that my English teachers had on me. And it was the idea of just encouragement. Um, I think oftentimes a lot of people are put off by poetry, especially in school, because uh they don't feel like they have an access to it. It doesn't feel like it's relevant to them. Um, sometimes it's portrayed as, you know, these uh, old dead white writers that have been long gone writing about things that feel uh, kind of alien and, and rigid. And uh, I was privileged enough to find teachers that would expose me to things that, that seemed exciting. And at the same time, when I really wanted to pursue writing and, and figure out what kind of story I wanted to tell. I found a lot of really interesting stuff that was coming out of the US at the time. Um, Def Jam Poetry was really alive yeah. and kicking on YouTube. Uh, and I think it exposed a lot of people uh, to a lot of really diverse voices, a lot of really interesting voices that seemed relevant and current and, and urgent. And then there was a the slam movement in the US was in its heyday. Uh, and there were podcasts and there were all sorts of poets touring. And so that inspired me to try and find spaces in Auckland that were uh, that would allow me to perform. And I found the Going West Slam. I found uh, Poetry Live up on Karangahapi Road here. And then eventually I found Rising Voices, which was a, a youth poetry movement uh, set up by um, members of the South Auckland Poets Collective, uh, namely Jai McDonald and uh, the amazing Grace Taylor, who um, has been a real mentor and friend to me and, and driving force in kind of pushing me to, to take poetry seriously and to keep writing. And then eventually I found the National Slam, which was organized by uh, Michelle Dury, the, the late, uh, beautiful Michelle. And I found this place that was incredibly supportive and that allowed me to speak to all of the things that I want to speak to, whether that was identity or racism or Islamophobia or travel or politics or, uh, or my own name. Um, and it would be malleable enough. It didn't really matter that I, uh, you know, I didn't have to go to like a conference of like-minded individuals that all came from the same background as me, that all studied the same thing for them to understand. But it would be a space where anybody could come and speak their story and their truth, and they would find support and, and listening and, he and hearing in that place. And that was really powerful. And I think that was that really sparked for me the, the catalyst to, to kind of stick to it and, and to really see how I could use this to my own benefit and, and desire in telling my story. Yeah, I mean, I, I found like as a cis, white, straight male, most of the time I was actually in the minority in these spaces mm. because it had such an opportunity for those who don't get a platform to have a platform. And, you know, people like me have always had a platform, but lots of people haven't. And so I went along to these spaces and I was welcomed just as much as anybody, but but not more than anybody, you know. And I, I just thought that was beautiful. And, and it also meant that I started rubbing shoulders with people who weren't like me. You know, I started learning about the world in a way that just was different to a way I'd ever experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something so unique i think to this community to this space that we have um and then you know it's easy to kind of step outside it and, and take a look at how 
much miscommunication there is in, in the world yeah. that exists around us, how much anger and how much um, lack of compassion there is. And I wonder often how much of that is the fact that people just never got an, an opportunity to be in this in these spaces surrounded by so many people that had so many different stories to tell uh, with a real clear mandate that, you know, you're here to listen and at some point you're going to get to speak and everybody's going to listen to you and everyone's going to support you. Um, and I think that's something really powerful and unique to have in, in the, you know, the day and age that we live in today. Yeah. You're also a journalist, which I guess is unsurprising because it's also storytelling. Um, but what, what was it that pulled you into that journalism world? So when I was at the end of my high school journey, I was really confused about what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved writing and I loved media, but I didn't really think that there was a really a viable career path through that. Uh, and I come from a family of engineers and immigrant family that, that uh, really wanted me to do something secure and stuff. So I left high school. And then I decided to apply for engineering school um, at Oakland University, which very quickly reve was revealed to be like a, like a big mistake. Like I, I hated it. It wasn't for me. I wasn't even good at it. Uh, I would have made a terrible engineer. I don't think anyone in New Zealand uh, needs bridges being built by me. Um, uh, but then, you know, during that period of time, a couple of things happened that really pushed me in the direction of journalism. Poetry was certainly one of them, the idea that I was thinking a lot more and writing a lot more and, and trying to think about the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, and the other thing was the Arab Spring, um, which had taken place basically as I was finishing uh, engineering school and really changed everything for me. It was uh, this beautiful uprising that was happening in my hometown in Cairo that everybody was watching, everybody was transfixed by. Uh, and I was certainly like day and night consuming every piece of media and content and information that I could. I was on Twitter every day, reading the tweets coming out of Tahrir Square and, and the activists that were that were sparking this movement. But more importantly, I was watching channels like Al Jazeera and the journalists that were there on the ground telling the story that it wasn't being told anywhere else. It certainly wasn't being told by Egyptian media or state, like the Egyptian government media, which was very tightly controlled, but it had this profound impact on the outcomes of what was going on in that place. And it really empowered people on the ground to be able to tell their story in an unfiltered way. And it also allowed them to have this avenue to speak to the world. And I really felt in that moment that something was like was was calling me to, to this profession um, and to the ability to tell stories that I felt really connected to. And so I decided that all of this, like it was like a light bulb moment where I realized that everything that I, I had been so passionate about in, in my high school um, fit into the world of journalism, whether that, that was writing or filmmaking or just the idea of telling stories and, and using social media and, and trying to, like the immediacy of it and, and the connectedness of it um, and platforming other people's voices, that was all there for me in journalism. And so I, I, uh, I went and did a course at AUT um, and entered my first newsroom and uh, and, and then I basically uh, jumped head first into it. And the other thing that was real a real impetus for me was um, me really wanting to challenge the really harmful narratives about Muslims and the Muslim community that I was seeing in the media that were 
surrounding us that were basically everywhere that the Arab Spring in a way was kind of an answer to because it was for the first time people were seeing these young Muslims and young Arabs on TV um, that weren't, you know, fitting into the violent, barbaric caricature that people had had kind of been inundated with. And I uh, was looking around at my own community here in New Zealand and realizing that the only way that this narrative about us was going to change was for us to have people in that space telling these stories and, and directing the, narr- the narrative to voices that deserve to be heard. Um, and when I, yeah, when I entered that, that space, I, uh, when I entered my first newsrooms, I realized there were no Muslims, there were no brown people working in these spaces. Uh, and there was no one really to be able to tell these stories in the, in the way that they needed to be told. And so that really became a driving force for me to, to keep going and to, to keep working. And you've ended up like doing a, a whole lot of work, like you say, in the Middle East, um, including being you know on the ground with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How is like being over there rather than watching it? You know, you say you watched Al Jazeera and things from here, but what's it been like in terms of shaping you to actually be on the ground over there, seeing the thing for yourself? Yeah, so I I think I spent about seven years working here um, and covering news in New Zealand and and covering ethnic affairs and things like that. And and a lot of that stuff, a lot of that work felt really uh, dear to me and really important. But there was always like this nagging thing uh, in the back of my mind uh, pulling me. And, And I think it's a very personal thing probably outside of even journalism or anything like that, but just me want uh, like a desire for me to want to connect back with the place that I had come from, um, that it was still very much alive in my, in my head and in my life. Uh, I was still very much consuming a lot of the news that was coming out of the Middle East. And I was very engaged with what was going on. Um, and at some point I was privileged enough to get an opportunity to go, uh, to Istanbul and, and cover, uh, international news, but specifically cover the Middle East. And I jumped at that opportunity and, you know, it was a chance to travel and and to see a part of the world I'd never been before. Um, but also to take my work with me. And I, uh, got a chance to go to Jerusalem and to the West Bank and to Tel Aviv uh, a number of times and to cover what was happening over there. And this was an issue that, you know, if you grew up in an Arab household is you're intimately familiar with. It's, it's something that feels very personal. And, uh, I have a lot of Palestinian friends. I have a lot of Jewish friends that I had met over the course of my, uh, journalism work, but also in poetry. And, and so I, really wanted to be on the ground there and to get to see it for myself. And it was quite transformative to be able to be in the heart of something and, and talk to the people that whose lives were, were fundamentally impacted by it. And Jerusalem is a city that is uh, one of the most fascinating and magical places in the world. There is a real magnetism to it. Uh, and it's hard to describe. I, I, I still don't know what it is about that place, but I, every time I go, I, I honestly do not want to leave. Um, even though there's so much that's constantly happening there, there's this push and pull and fight over the heart and the soul of the city. And there's so much uh, injustice that, that takes place in, the, um, in those places. And, and I think it's been good uh, to be able to see a lot of that, those images filtering out into mainstream um, and international attention. Part of that was also social media and the role that social media has continued to play in giving people on the ground the power to tell their own stories. Um, and that, that has been something that 
you know, was very much a part of the Arab Spring um, and why the Arab Spring um, was so uh, important was because it coincided with the, the birth of social media and, and, uh, and, and the, the democratization of storytelling. And then it was, it was that opportunity to be there on the ground and talk to people and figure out what I could add to that story as a journalist, how I could contextualize what was happening and, and to be able to present uh, an image of it as best I can. And that was also like, it felt good because it felt separate to poetry and, and to writing, which was a very personal thing uh, where I was writing my own story. This was kind of a way to be able to help facilitate other people's stories and, and to mm. um, also learn to take myself out of the picture uh, in order to let other people speak, which I think is also a really important thing to learn. Yeah. You say um, as well that part of the reason you got into journalism was to be able to have someone who is Muslim covering that Muslim kind of voice. And I guess, you know, that's been a big part of your Middle East kind of journey as well. But back here in Aotearoa, that's also been part of what you've done. And uh, there's been a couple of podcasts that you've you've made for Radio New Zealand that I found deeply impacting and deeply informative as a, a a white Christian New Zealander who hasn't had any understanding of the things that you talk about in your podcast. You know, they've been so gold for me because, again, it's like the poetry thing. It's just exposed me to people who aren't like me. But also, not more than that, it's it's to hear their pain and their stories and the way that I'm in the world that's actually contributing to that pain, you know, and, and those kind of things. So, um, yeah, firstly, thank you for them. But you had first one was public enemy. Um, and it, and it looked at being Muslim in the U S Australia and Aotearoa, um, and looking at the ways that politics and world events and xenophobia and, and all of that kind of stuff has affected people's lives. Um, so firstly, I want to say like, if you're listening, go and listen to those podcasts cause they're just eye opening. I think if you are Muslim, you'll just feel very seen. And if you're not, it'll be very much something that will tug at your heart and, and help you think deeply about life. But um, the one I want to uh, talk to you about is is the one you created called The Guest House. Uh, and it's when you revisited the Christchurch terror attacks a year on. What was that experience of creating that podcast like for you? Because, you know, that you talk about the poetry being a deeply personal thing and then you talk about trying to step away from the personal and tell other people's stories. But, you know, you weren't just some random journalist with a passing interest in this, right? You you knew many of the people that were victims in the terror attacks and, like, you even helped bury many of them. So what what was the experience like for you of creating this podcast? First of all, thank you, um, Kyoto, for those very kind words. And I... Yeah, that experience of, of, of making uh, the guest house uh, was was really strange. And um, as was any and all coverage that I did of the of March 15 and the and the attacks in Christchurch, uh, because it was it was as you mentioned, it was like it was my world colliding very uh, uh, immediately with my professional life and my, um, uh, and that began, you know, in the, in the days following the attacks, when I, when I returned home, um, 
as a journalist to go and cover what was going on and to talk to people um, only to find myself getting, you know, very quickly sucked into the community aspects of the work that was happening over there. Um, everybody that I knew, basically, my friends, family um, were all over there. Um, everybody was was working to try and, and, and support the community as much as possible uh, in whatever way we could. Uh, and at the same time, it was this really surreal experience of seeing the inevitable media circus that transcended on Christchurch from all over the world, uh, which was wild. It was it was very surreal. And at some point, I I made a decision, you know, without consulting even my my editors back in Istanbul, that I wasn't going to try and interview any of the victims because I didn't feel like I could add anything there. You know, there were, there were multiple channels that were interviewing them. Um, there, you know, some of the families were having to kind of like field like dozens of media calls every single day. And that I also had a role to play as a member of the community that felt a lot more immediate and a lot more genuine. Um, and so it was very confronting uh, as a journalist to think about how my role could be something that could bring harm to people in certain situations or can cause them discomfort um, or could add to this kind of like hysteria that, that the media sometimes uh, falls into. And it was really important to be able to tell stories of what, what had happened and to, and to give space for the victims and their families to be able to speak. Um, but it, I mean, also very quickly became this kind of I, competitive thing where you have journalists competing to try and get the same story, um, which wasn't helpful to anybody. Um, and so that was something that I had to think a lot about. And when I had the opportunity to create a podcast or, or something to, to respond to it, I, I really wanted to think about what I felt like I could add to that conversation without needing to go back and to try and talk hound some of these same people to, to, to do another media interview that that wasn't really going to bring them anything and at the same time there was an aspect of it that I that I wanted to explore which was the fact that as a Muslim and as a Muslim Kiwi this was something that had had uh, a profound impact on my community and myself and and everyone around me um, because you know, as you mentioned, I had I had friends and um, uh, and acquaintances that were either at the mosque or had lost someone in the mosques. Um, I also had a family in, in in Auckland that I felt really far away from being in Istanbul, and really had to think about how safe they were and, and my ability to be able to protect them. Um, and I had a lot of conversations with. Uh, with with friends and family members that suddenly didn't feel safe going to the mosque or being out in public spaces, uh, and you know you, you you'll remember Andy, you know in the in the days and weeks that followed, everybody was on edge. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know whether something else was going to happen. We don't know um, how to deal with this as a country, and. The other thing that was happening is that I was having conversations as well, you know, being uh, where I was overseas, I was having conversations with people that and other Muslims that were telling me very similar experiences outside of New Zealand, whether this was in Australia or the UK or, or Turkey or, or the US. 
And I realized that this was something that a lot of people really felt quite viscerally in their own lives. Um, a lot of people felt nervous about going to Friday prayers, uh, even, you know, as far away as places like Birmingham. Um, and this, this, this was something that really had a chilling effect on a lot of people's lives. And I was trying to figure out how to capture that from the, the perspective of, of a member of the Muslim community. And yeah, it's, it's weird to, to, to spend so long trying to separate yourself from your journalism um, and trying to keep your journalism as, as kind of like this, as much as possible, this objective lens only to realize that, you know, the, that like in that moment, I think the best way that I could have told that story was to just, just to speak about it from my own perspective uh, and to talk to people that I knew about their own perspectives and to try and highlight some of the things that I thought weren't being um, highlighted in, in, um, in the public narrative. And there were things like anger that, that, that a lot of people in the Muslim community felt, but didn't feel comfortable expressing publicly. But, uh, but it was also about uh, grief and, and about trying to kind of come to grips with some of the experiences that people have had in the past as Muslims in, in the public light and, and what it meant now and, and what it meant to belong. Um, and I was really privileged to be able to um, go back to Christchurch at the very end of that podcast and speak to the imam of Al-Nur Mosque, uh, Gamal Fouda, um, about his experiences and, and, and him as somebody that very quickly was thrust into this massive public light yeah. um, while he was having to grieve on his own terms. Yeah, that must have been so hard for him. Yeah, I and I, and I can't imagine. And he's 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 been one of the one of those you know pillars of the community that uh, who you know he had a, lead, a a leadership role that had its own kind of limits, and then suddenly that that took on a very very different um, lights, and and suddenly he was on you know live television, and everybody was watching him give his Friday sermon a week after the attacks, and it was it was a, it was crazy, and the way that he was able to articulate that was was pretty profound. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in lockdown in a school in Christchurch, um, not knowing what was going on. So I went through that kind of experience. Mm. I, my brother was working at the school where a guy, a dad turned up with a gun and they thought it might be another attack. And so then the armed services had to clear the school. And, you know, so all of that was going on. So I experienced it in a small personal way. Yeah. But for me, for me, it was something that you know it shook us as a as a city as a nation but it felt like it actually wasn't that long for most western new zealanders before actually life got back to normal mm. and i think one of the things i appreciated about hearing your stories and the stories that you brought through the um even structuring the podcast around those cycles of grief is that actually this had ramifications that was like lasting for the Muslim community in New Zealand that wasn't just, oh, well, let's wait a few months and, you know, now we're moving on with life. Um, you know, this was a real thing. And one of those things that I was really ignorant to that uh, I've subsequently learnt from reading some of your stuff and hearing you talk is, you know, I would have assumed that given the public response to the shootings that uh, racism against and, and attacks on Muslims would have decreased but that wasn't the case was it no unfortunately it wasn't and it was a i mean it's it's difficult to be able to capture everything that happened afterwards 
uh, and a full picture because it's it's very complex. And like you said, your experiences on that day um, are pretty traumatic, and it's something that would have had a, 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 a lasting effect on you, but certainly your students um, in those spaces. And that's also a part of it that I think is um, is is hard to be able to to, to 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 capture. And that's one of the reasons I think I felt disappointed because I did feel, you know, as you said, that uh, that not long after the attack, things had started to go back to normal. And I personally would have wanted us to kind of figure out new ways of talking about it. Maybe, you know, ways that weren't going to, you know, re-trigger or re-traumatize um, people involved, but uh, but to actually be able to actually heal because, you know, this wasn't something that just affected or targeted the Muslim community. This was a pretty profound thing for us to have to deal with as a country. Um, and there were a lot of elements to it. And, you know, every time I... Um, I do go to Christchurch and and I and I speak to to, to what happened. I, I meet with people from different communities that all like yourself have very personal stories about what yeah. happened that day. Um, and it, it you know sometimes I have the feeling that people have these stories and they don't know where to put them. They don't know where to take them. Um, it feels very quite uncomfortable uh, to talk about uh, March 15 uh, because it's, it's such a heavy thing. And I, you know, the same way that the Muslim community is still figuring out ways of processing it, I, I think in a lot of ways as a country, we're still figuring out ways of processing it. I don't think we were quite there yet. I don't think we've healed from what happened. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's, uh, tricky thing certainly within the muslim community this is something that very much is, is still feels very real in people's lives um and very present and a part of that is is the fact that you know we have very conflicting feelings and emotions about the, the aftermath of the attacks and what happened because we saw the enormous outpouring of love and support um, uh, that, that had come out of it and compassion. And we saw what happened with people in Christchurch. And we saw, you know, the, the, the Friday sermon afterwards that was surrounded by people um, in Hagley Park, and, and which was incredible. It was so overwhelming um, to know that we have that as a, a capacity to do that as a country, to be able to come together in that way. And... I mean, the entire world was watching how we were responding to it as a country, um, and it was beautiful. I think it was it was it was a testament to what we can do when we need to. And at the same time, you know, you had unfortunately a darker underbelly to what was happening, and and you had people that were felt in some ways emboldened to um, to be a lot more public in their views on certain things and their hatred. And we there were documents that saw a spike in attacks on, on Muslims, um, which is, uh, feels counterintuitive, but it, but it makes sense when you think about it. Um, you have this community that suddenly became hyper visible after the attacks and you had, uh, Muslims that were on TV every night and on the radio and, and people that were going out and speaking about different things. Um, and that exposed them to people that had ill intent and, and, uh, and, 
you know, anger in their hearts and, and they, and they, uh, and I have friends that received death threats when they spoke out about certain things. And, uh, when they tried to challenge the official narrative or, or, or kind of talk about, uh, or be angry in, in a public setting, um, that was very difficult, uh, for, for people to be able to, to do. Um, and it took a lot of bravery for, for them to be, to be able to do. And so it was, it was complicated. I, I think, there was a lot that we gained from our ability to come together and to heal and to respond. I think it feels like we're richer as a, as a society. I think it feels good that people are a lot more aware of the Muslim community about Muslim life. They're not as they're more comfortable with seeing Muslims in public. And, and I'm, and I'm seeing that every time I come back, I feel, I feel that change. And at the same time, I think there is still a conversation to be had. And this is not yeah. a conversation that stops uh, at the Muslim community. The Muslim community is just a part of it because we have a lot of other communities, a lot of other experiences. Um, at the heart of that, of course, is the ongoing and difficult uh, conversation about the bicultural identity of New Zealand and, and Tagata Fenua and, and, what, and, and, and Tereo and, and what all of these things mean and, and what part they play in our society. And I feel like it's a conversation that's alive and it's progressing. And again, uh, every time I come back, and this is the, the um, interesting perspective that I feel like I have had being overseas for the last few years is that I, every time I come back, I get these like these snippets, these vignettes of New Zealand society. Um, and I'm able to kind of compare them and, and I, and I can feel things changing and I can feel things growing and, and fleshing out. And it feels really beautiful. It feels really beautiful to come back, uh, and, and see how much, uh, Tereo has, uh, become a, a living part of our conversation, our the way that we talk to each other, the language that we use, uh, and that feels like it's new. It feels like it's it's something that that wasn't there ten years ago. Um, and so I feel like we are moving in the right direction. We are having a lot of really important conversations, uh, but it's also important to to kind of keep in perspective that you know we are a country that is healing from a lot of things, from a lot of historical traumas as well as recent ones, and that. We, uh, we shouldn't try and avoid that. We shouldn't try and uh, pretend like it's not happening because it is. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it can also be a really beautiful process and a really uh, constructive and healing process that makes us all feel more comfortable in our society and feel closer to each other and feel more connected, which I think is always a good thing. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to have this all um, was uh, because a lot of these stories and a lot of these ideas that we've already been talking about, uh, you've pulled them all together into your your new book uh, called How to Be a Bad Muslim and Other Essays. Did you have an ideal audience in mind for this? Was it to help other Muslims feel noticed? Was it to, to give insight to people like me who haven't been part of the Muslim community? Or was it just stories of your own that you needed to get out? Yeah, I think it was all three of those things. I started writing uh, essays about uh, a couple of topics and, and there were there were things that I'd been fleshing out from some of the poetry that I've been working on and uh, the, the, the topics that were really important to me. And I started writing about them in, in longer forms and in, in, uh, in, in more uh, essay forms back in 2020. And part of that was conversations about 
Christchurch and about dealing with March 15. And another part of that was uh, was kind of my own experiences as a Muslim growing up in the world over the last two decades. My experiences in airports, uh, in through migration, in, in the workplace. And it felt in a lot of ways like just a natural extension of the kind of work that I've been doing uh, previously, and both in poetry and in journalism. Um, and I've been really thankful to kind of hear uh, a bunch of feedback to, to the book since it's come out. And, um, and and I've heard both of those reactions, people that say that they read it and feel um, like they understand that experience a little bit better. Um, and then Muslims that read it and, and say that, you know, that felt so familiar to their own experience. Migrating here, growing up here, and just kind of existing and being aware of their identity in, in, the, in the heightened politicized world that we have lived in, certainly since uh, the September 11 attacks and the war on terror that began and still continues um, to today and how that has uh, affected and changed the Muslim experience uh, and the Muslim identity. And so I wanted to be able to capture all of that stuff, but also, I mean, just as a writer, just to just to write about things that were important to me. And part of that was were things that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the Muslim experience. Um, and it had to do with mental health and anxiety and, and, and some of those things, which I also felt like it was important to be able to talk about because um, oftentimes in immigrant communities, it's hard to talk about these things because there aren't enough tools of awareness and support for people. So part of it was just me trying to be honest about my own experience and, uh, and to try and capture it in the best way that I could. And I think uh, I found that the stuff around the mental health, you know, that's been a big part of my journey, but, you know, hearing it from you and how many different f- things feed into that, you know, how, how do you keep yourself healthy when you're in a profession that continually puts conflict and trauma in front of you on top of mad deadlines and, you know, the, the kind of pressure that comes with that? Have you found that something you've learnt to balance over time? Uh that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I've figured out that balance yet, but I've become a lot more aware of it. Uh, I think it is a problem. I think it's definitely within uh, journalism. It is a big problem that in the industry, people don't really know how to talk about yet. They're starting to talk about it, which is really good. It definitely isn't, you know, we, there's a generation uh, of, um, of war correspondents that's really came to prominence in the 80s that basically spent their careers covering trauma and war and conflict. And it wasn't until afterwards that you started realizing a lot of these people are really fundamentally broken because of a lot of the things that they've had to endure and and witness professionally. And there weren't any avenues to recognize that and to treat it and to deal with it. Um, And I think now they're starting to become... Uh, a little bit more recognition. Newsrooms are starting to understand the fact that uh, covering uh, a lot of these really intense stories actually impacts the journalists that cover them quite a lot. And um, I know that, you know, a couple of years ago, there was some really interesting work that was being done. That The, the name escapes me of the journalist that, that did it, but about uh, the journalists that were covering the Christchurch earthquakes. And, uh, and, and the people, I mean, that was a story that was being told by Christchurch journalists and, um, and what that meant to be able to have to work through that in a professional way when you are also a victim of, of this kind of trauma. 
Um, last week, I had a conversation with Mike McRoberts about the, the book specifically, but about March 15. And he was telling me that as uh, somebody that was born and raised in Christchurch and covered the attacks of March 15, he has had his own kind of grief and trauma to be able to deal with. And that was a very difficult thing for him to be able to do and to go back to this place that is um, home for him and to be able to cover something so traumatic. And so there is there is a conversation that is beginning to, to, to take place um, about, about about how to, how to kind of protect yourself and understand what you're going through as a journalist. Uh, and it is something that I've been a lot more aware of recently, covering the Middle East and covering a lot of the conflicts that have taken place there in recent years. Even, you know, and, I, and I'm starting to, like now I play a, a managerial role in my job and I have younger journalists that, that I work with um, that are stepping into this space for the first time. Um, and I'm starting to be a lot more aware of the kind of impact that it has on them. Even if, it, if it's something as simple as just having to sort through footage, raw footage that comes out from an attack, uh, breaking news story, and then having to be able to kind of turn that into something that is easier for the public to digest. You know, you have to you go through some sometimes really graphic footage that you have to censor and, and sort through. Um, and it's a reality of what part of your job is. And it's easy sometimes to just be on autopilot and desensitize yourself to it. And that's how often, you know, uh, people deal with things. But it's, uh, it is really important to be aware of it. And so I don't know. I don't think I have kind of figured out what the solution is to that yet. I think as an industry, we're still kind of talking about it and trying to figure figure out healthier ways to talk about it. Um, but it is a conversation that is really important. I really appreciated that you went there in the book because like, it just does highlight that we all go through stuff. And you know, some of that for you was part journalism. Some of it was about grief and loss, which again is really good to publicly have a conversation about grief and loss because well particularly in in the western culture of New Zealand it's just not something that we're that good at um but you cover you cover a whole range of things like you said from xenophobia um to love to grief and loss to wealth and poverty mental health um Fano. was there any kind of one essay or one theme in the book that you're really proud to have written about I think the mental health side of things was something that I was really um nervous it felt a lot more personal and a lot more uh of an exposing of myself than maybe some of the other stuff that that, that i felt a lot more comfortable talking about uh whether it's xenophobia or or, or, or um uh, islamophobia um and so i think the mental health stuff felt really the, deeply personal um i wasn't writing about it as a journalist i was writing about it as a person that was dealing and experiencing it um but I, I, I did feel that it was also something that was important. And I've been really grateful to other people who have spoken publicly about their journeys with mental health. And I wanted to be able to talk about that because it was something that, that had become a big part of my life and that I was trying to find uh, healthy ways of dealing with. And also beyond that, as a Muslim, to be able to try and think about how that played a part in the way that I dealt with these things. Um, and hopefully... I mean, I really do hope that there are other Muslims that, that will get a chance to read uh, that part of the book and think about that as well. There is a conversation about depression that I think we are having in New Zealand and we have been having in New Zealand and, and other mental health issues that 
isn't happening in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, it, it is a it is a somewhat of a pandemic for for us and our young people, especially here. Um, and so it's been really good to grow up in a country that is starting to have these conversations. And that kind of conversation, I also want to be able to have and engage in in the Muslim community and in, in immigrant communities, because it's uh, oftentimes for people from immigrant backgrounds, it can be really tricky and there are social taboos around it. Um, and there are things that we kind of carry uh, in our culture that's that maybe don't uh, there are barriers sometimes in talking about mental health and so yeah i f- I feel proud nervous anxious yeah. <laughs> that uh, the, the, that I was putting this part of myself out there but i but I hope that it can contribute to something important yeah to be honest, I thought I was going to get this book and then like knock it out in a couple of days so that I'd you know got the content and then um, then I could c- connect with you about maybe interviewing you and that kind of thing. But like, just the first chapter alone just floored me. Uh, and I had to stop and give myself space to process and to think. And I think it very much is that kind of book, you know, that it's not a book that you're just going to pick up for some light reading and black through. Um, it's a book that speaks to what it means to be human. Um, it's a book that highlights things that may or may not be part of your world and makes you reflect on the fact that whether or not you've experienced it, this is part of the world. And, you know, it it got me asking, well, how am I contributing to how the world is in positive and negative ways? And yeah, without ruining it for those who are yet to read it, you know, that first chapter where you, you start talking about a YouTuber and then, you know, follow his rise within the YouTube world and then all the sort of the journey that went alongside that where you landed that chapter it just really spoke to me of you know this xenophobia this fear of others fear of some people that are different to you none of it's isolated is it no no totally uh and i I think we're, we're starting to recognize that 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 so much of our experience, especially online these days, is uh, is so interwoven with so many really complicated things and, and cultures and movements and ideas. And, you know, we've become a lot more aware of the link between the, the far right and, and YouTube algorithms, for example, and how young people especially can be really open and susceptible to that. It's a... Uh, it's a hard conversation to have because we don't have a lot of the answers and a lot of the tools at our disposal to be able to understand really how the internet, social media, uh, these new societies that we formed online uh, impact us. We, we don't really understand. We don't have access and transparency to the way um, Facebook and YouTube uh, algorithms work or what their priorities are when um trying to create these platforms that are constantly changing, that, that um, are relying on a whole bunch of hidden algorithms that even the, the technicians that work on them aren't fully uh, grasping of. And so what we've been seeing as well um, over the last few years is that there is this rise, um, this kind of radicalization that happens to young people through the internet and 
whether that is the far right or whether that was ISIS, uh, where we saw, you know, the same demographic of kids from different backgrounds um, being radicalized through online communities that their parents didn't have any oversight over um, and that the rest of us didn't quite understand. And then you had forums like HN um, that were purposefully trying to kind of create spaces that harbored a lot of really dark and dangerous thoughts and ideas that were being masked by this uh, this veneer of like humor and irony and, and edginess. Um, and now we're starting to realize that, okay, this is actually a lot more dangerous than we had given it um, time and space before. And I think that's that's the weird thing about the, the, the current moment that we're in right now is that we feel like our world is has changed quite drastically um, because of the internet and we're starting to slowly come to grips with in what ways our lives have, have changed and in what ways old ideas that had nothing to do with the internet have found, found harbors online and, and found new audiences and found new ways of communicating. And I think that's a challenge for, for us to be able to, um, while we think about how to reform and fix online communities and social medias so that they're not as destructive as they sometimes can be, um, to think about how to address these other ideas that are not products of the digital realm, but products of human communities and human ideas and thoughts. How do we have conversations online? How do we create safe spaces online for our young people? Um, and, and how do we um, deal with these things? Um, yeah, that first chapter was, was, is quite different because it's, uh, it's very different from the rest of the book. It's the only chapter that I don't speak about from a, like a first-person lens. Um, and it's, uh, and kind of made a decision with, with my publisher, Claire, to put that at the beginning because, I mean, it's, it's probably the most confronting piece, I think, in the, in the, in the book. Um, and it's a lot for people to read early on. But then it kind of presents the rest of the book, hopefully, as kind of a response to that. Yeah. And to kind of like highlight where the problem is and then to be able to be like, okay, well, part of that solution is just me talking about my life and, and, uh, and to just explain my reality and my experience. Because part of the problem is the fact that people haven't been exposed to the experience of Muslims, like a real first-person experience of Muslims, that was one thing that was uh, missing for a long, long time. And that's what a, part of the reason that allowed these really dark and angry feelings and, and thoughts to fester into our societies unchallenged. Um, and so, yeah, that was my intention with that uh, first piece. Yeah. I mean, I could keep asking you questions all day, but uh, we need to wrap it up. So... I guess as we close, what's what what's your hope for the book? Uh, I mean, one thing I hope that this is uh, not the last book that comes out from a Muslim New Zealander talking about their experience. And th there's been a couple recently, which has been really great. Um, I think about After the Tampa by uh, Abbas Nazari, about his incredible story. And I think about some of the stories that have come out from, from the Christchurch Muslim community and that will no doubt come out in the, in the next couple of years. So that's something that I really hope happens. But I also hope that whoever gets an opportunity to read the book, whoever wants to, uh, to, to, to read it, learns something from it, either through the idea that, you know, finds a connection in it, finds part of themselves that they, that they see in, this, uh, in, this, in these stories, but also, you know, helps make 
the way that we connect to each other a little bit more um, malleable, a little softer. Yeah. If we can see ourselves in each other and each other's stories, then that helps us communicate better and, and think about each other and, and have love and support and compassion for, for other people in our community. And so that's, that's the kind of energy that I hope I'm putting out into the world through this writing. Uh, and I hope that it's reciprocated. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for giving your time to talk to us today. Thank you for your poetry, your journalism, um, your book, which is just a beautiful gift to the world. Thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable, because I think that's a huge part of whether it's your poetry, your journalism or the book. There's that level of vulnerability that comes through that just is really gripping, but is also very freeing for people to encourage them and allow them to be vulnerable as well. So um, yeah, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Uh, kia ora, Andy. Thank you so much for that, um, for those lovely words, your generosity and your, the energy that you brought to this, uh, this conversation and this book. Um, and yeah, this has been a really great chat. Hello, hello heaven. Will I hear you whisper to come I'm so grateful to Muhammad for his willingness to share his experiences with us. His life is vastly different from my own, and his willingness to open up has allowed me, and I'm sure many of you, to see things from a different perspective. And if I'm truly going to be someone who loves others, as I want to be, it's my duty to listen to them, and to hear what life is like for them, to become aware of things from their perspective, and maybe start to see the world just a little differently. I 100% recommend Muhammad's book for anyone who would like to explore more. It's powerful, and it's written by a true storyteller, and full of heart. Sure to leave you inspired and challenged. Muhammad, thank you for who you are, and for what you do. Here is a blessing for you. Muhammad. May words continue to flow for you and from you, through your poetry, your writing, and your mahi. And may those words find homes in the hearts of those with ears to hear. May many young people be drawn to tell their stories as they hear you tell your own, especially those who don't feel that they would be listened to or that anyone would care. May they find courage from your courage and heart from your heart. And may they find their welcoming spaces just as you have found your own. May your book be part of changing a culture, opening eyes, shifting mindsets, shaping hearts. And may everyone who reads it be left knowing more about others and more about themselves. As you continue as a journalist, may you always retain your compassion. That part of you that decided not to interview survivors because of the harm it might contribute. And may people be drawn to your work as they feel the humanity embedded in your words. May you continue to find people who give to you more than they take, whose friendships leave you full, whose words build you up and spur you on, and whose presence brings you much joy. And lastly, may you know that you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. 
Join me next time when I talk to Puno Wano Bryant as we approach the anniversary of the invasion of Parihaka in 1881. Puna was chair of the trust who negotiated the Parihaka Reconciliation Bill in 2017, including an apology to the people of Parihaka from the Crown. We talk about that and what that process was like. We also talk about Puna's work as a lawyer and why she was drawn to give her life in service to Māori justice. It's a powerful corridor with another epic human. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou i te kino Mūro mātou hara me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou